Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today we travel back in time to examine one of the most transformative eras of the 874-year history of Moscow's storied capital, Moscow. My guest today is Catherine Zubovich, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Buffalo of the State University of New York, and the author of Moscow Monumental, Soviet Skyscrapers and Urban Life in Stalin's Capital, which is out this year from Princeton University Press. Moscow Monumental takes us behind the scenes of a decades-long effort to reshape Moscow, Russia's pre-revolutionary second city known for its 40 times 40 churches, whose onion-shaped cupolas once soared above the two- and three-story skyline. Today, many of these churches are only distant memories, and the new markers of the city's horizons are seven soaring skyscrapers, affectionately known as Stalin's wedding cakes, or simply as the Vesotnaya, or the high buildings. Two of these are ministries, two are hotels, two are elite residential buildings, and one houses Moscow State University. In Moscow Monumental, Catherine Zubovich takes us through the many iterations of the Soviet vision of an idealized capital, and along the way, we meet both its champions and its opponents, and the hapless victims of this march towards a new and better Moscow. Moscow Moscow Monumental is a fascinating story of architecture, politics, urban development, and social history. And Professor Zubovich does a marvelous job of weaving all these threads together into a cohesive narrative that both informs and entertains. Having lived in Moscow for two decades, I was delighted to have the opportunity to revisit many of my favorite alleyways, squares, and buildings. But Moscow Monumental held much that was new and revelatory for me, which is why it's such a pleasure to welcome Professor Zubovich to the podcast and to discuss this marvelous book. Professor Zubovich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin um, by asking you about your academic background and how did it lead you to this fascinating topic? Sure. Well, um, as you know, Jennifer, having lived in Moscow for quite a while, you know, if you visit the city today, these buildings that are at the heart of my book, they still loom large on the skyline of that city. And so I wanted to investigate them historically. And I found that very little archival research had been done on these structures, uh, but that there was a trove of archival documents waiting to be explored. Um, And this trove of documents not only tells us about these buildings and how they were designed and constructed, but also about who built these skyscrapers, uh, who lived in them, and who were displaced to make way for them. And these are all questions that I was really interested in exploring. Um, Now, this book, of course, originated as a dissertation, and it was shaped initially by my experiences as a student studying Russian history and architecture. Um, As an undergraduate student many, many years ago now, uh, I majored in history, but also in art history and in Slavic studies. And when I went to grad school, I knew that I wanted to work on something to do with architecture and urban planning as it related to the former Soviet Union. Um, And I was really lucky to be starting graduate work uh, at a time when the urban and architectural history of the Soviet Union and the former socialist world was sort of becoming a burgeoning field. Um, There were a lot of books that were coming out right at the time that I was starting grad school, um, you know, by people like Carl Qualls and Heather DeHaan and Steve Harris and 
Catherine Lebov and Steve Binder and so on, um, and and you know, kind of joining this really exciting subfield um, that tends to be interdisciplinary as well was an exciting thing for me as a grad student. Um, now I'm trained as a historian, but I also have that undergraduate degree in art history, and so I found myself as I was beginning to work on this project and starting to write, I found myself as interested in telling a kind of social political history of these buildings as I was in writing about aesthetic questions that are raised by the design and construction of these structures. That's that's fascinating. And I think that's one of the great successes of the book is that you do weave those two things together really effortlessly so that it's just a, it's a fantastic story, um, as well as a study of, of the urban renewal and the architecture of these buildings, which I, I have to confess, I had always kind of thought were absolutely identical. Yeah. <laughs> um, oops. Uh, but let's begin at the beginning because you begin the story in the heady days of the 1920s. And I, I wonder if we could begin with a portrait of Moscow, which has only very recently become the capital of this new country. What is Moscow like? And what are some of the challenges that the new government, the new city government and the new national government faces in its um, role as the capital? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 1920s uh, is such a fascinating period. You know, it's one in which we see this incredible avant-garde experimentation happening in Moscow, as well as, you know, throughout the new Soviet Union. But it's also a moment where we see important continuities uh, coming in from the pre-revolutionary period um, into this moment as well. And, And it's a moment when the new Soviet government is striving to project power and to exert control. Um, So it's this time of flux and contradiction. Uh, You know, that revolution of 1917 had, uh, you know, opened up many potential paths for governance, but also for architecture and city building. So it's a moment of great potential. Um, And so I opened the book with images of Moscow in the 1920s that were uh, assembled into a photo album by a Moscow-based art historian named Alexei Sidorov. And um, Sederov in the late 1920s compiled this kind of visual portrait of Moscow in that moment um, in order to show how quickly his city was changing. Uh, And and so these images show things like, you know, horse-drawn carts traveling down cobblestone streets alongside advertisements for modern automobiles. And and Sederov was really interested um, and kind of captivated by the contrasts and contradictions in the urban street scenes of his era. Uh, And he described Moscow in the late 1920s as a city that was, you know, the liveliest spot in a wide awakening Russia, but also as dirty and provincial. So Moscow is kind of both of these things, you know, a place with a lot of potential, but that still needed a lot of work. You know, it was a city Mm -hmm. that was rich in symbolism and history and well suited to be the capital once again, but it still needed to be reworked to suit kind of the needs and to fit the image of the new Soviet state. Um, and what is that vision? Um, what is the vision for the new Moscow and and who yeah. sets that vision? And and I also um, should ask you at this point, 
to define the expression monumental, just so that we're clear on Mm -hmm. what that actually means in the context of your book. Yeah. So by the 1930s, um, you know, the Soviet state is sort of increasingly taking control of, you know, the myriad debates that are happening in the realm of architecture and urban planning about what to do with this new capital city of Moscow. Um, And by the 30s, monumentalism had become a kind of important goal for Soviet architecture, in particular in architectural plans for the capital. Um, You know, the 30s saw the creation of the Moscow General Plan of 1935. Um, And the General Plan is really interesting because um, it it was sort of doing multiple things at once, right? While it called for a number of changes to the city and sort of modernization schemes for the city, widening of roads, uh, building up of embankments along the river to stop flooding, um, expanding city building into the southwest of Moscow, the General Plan also retained really important elements of Moscow's existing urban fabric. So Moscow's radial shape was maintained, for example. Um, And so this was a plan for the socialist reconstruction of Moscow, but it was also created at a moment in the 1930s when the pre-revolutionary past was coming to be seen as something of value. Um, And at the center of that plan was this monumental building, right, the Palace of Soviets, um, a building that was discussed in the 20s, but the planning for which really got off the ground in the early 30s when a series of design competitions were held for the structure, which was to be the new headquarters of the Soviet government. And, And it's really, a you know, alongside the Palace of Soviets project that we get discussions about monumentalism. Um, You know, the kind of discussions and debates about the palace were never just about the Palace of Soviets. This was a moment when Soviet architects were engaged in finding a new path, their own kind of socialist path to architecture and city building. Um, And so, you know, you see people like the writer Alexei Tolstoy publishing, uh, you know, an article in 1932 in the Soviet newspaper Izvestia, where he's talking about this new architecture, the search for a new architecture and the search for monumentality. And Tolstoy talked about the Palace of Soviets project as this kind of important and meaningful project that was going to help in answering an important question. And, And he put the question this way, you know, the proletariat having taken hold of history must put forth its own monumental forms in architecture. So there's all kinds of discussion happening in the 1930s among officials and writers, but also ordinary people about, you know, what is a socialist city? What is Soviet architecture? And how does monumentalism fit into all of this? Um, And so my book kind of picks up on that theme and looks at architectural monumentalism and then the consequences of building monumentally in the Stalin era. I was struck reading your book that... um... A, you, you spill a lot of ink on a building that's never actually built. That's a spoiler alert for um, those who haven't read the book, because the Palace of Soviets never gets built. But you do a masterful job of showing us all the ways it might have been built. And I wonder if you talk about some of those for a, a, a moment, um, because it is such a it's supposed to be the the hub of which the skyscrapers are like the spokes. Um, and, and yet um, it doesn't get built um, and something quite different is in the place where it should be. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. The Palace of Soviets was in the post-war years envisioned as the central edifice in that citywide skyscraper ensemble. Um, but of course, 
in the 1930s, the Palace of Soviets started out as a solo edifice, right? This, uh, you know, is a project dating back to the 20s that really gets underway in the 30s with this series of design competitions, one of which is an international competition. So it garners all kinds of international attention. Um, and the design that was ultimately chosen for the palace was 415 meters tall, making it at the time the tallest building in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And it was essentially a skyscraper perched on top of a domed amphitheater on top of which was to sit a giant statue of Lenin. Uh, and so, yeah, so a little bit sort of a little over the top, you know, monumental extreme. Um, there were discussions and debates about where to put this enormous structure. By 1931, the Soviet government had settled on the site of the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, this building that it was built to commemorate uh, the Russian imperial victory uh, in 1812, a building that was completed in the 1880s. And then in December 1931, the the cathedral was very unceremoniously demolished to make way for the palace. Um, But the Palace of Soviets is interesting because although it was never built, or it was never built to completion, I should say, um, a tremendous amount of energy and money was spent planning and talking about building it. Um, And um, a lot of effort was spent on building the foundation for this structure. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of reasons that my book, which is about Moscow's post-war skyscrapers, includes this chapter on this Palace of Soviets that was never built in the 1930s. Um, and one reason is, you know, the hold that this unbuilt structure had on Stalinist architecture, that the post-war skyscrapers were meant to complement and make reference to that earlier project. But the other reason that it's important to talk about the Palace of Soviets is that the administration for the construction of the Palace of Soviets, this organization created in the 30s to build the palace, um, that organization was tasked in 1947 with building two of Moscow's post-war skyscrapers. So it was actually the Palace of Soviets administration that built Moscow State University. Um, And so while, you know, for better or worse, uh, we don't have the Palace of Soviets on the skyline of Moscow today, we do have MGU. Um, And that building stands really as a testament to efforts that began in the 30s uh, to make Moscow this monumental city. Do you believe in the nun's curse? I don't know the nun's curse. Oh, you don't know the nun's curse? No. Um, It's because you're a serious academic and I'm a former tour guide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Apparently, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior was um, uh, built on the site of a convent, Mm -hmm. the much older convent, and they had to tear the convent down. And the Mother Superior cursed the ground and said, nothing will ever stand here more than a century. Mm -hmm. And so they said, ah, poo-poo crazy nun and they build the cathedral of christ the savior and then it's ceremoniously knocked down you know kind of a hundred years after it was completed uh they try to build the um palace of soviets it doesn't get going um and there's something uh to do with the construction of the metro because it's near a place where four metro stations come together Mm -hmm. that makes the ground very uneven and so they had to build that very large swimming pool Mm -hmm. Um, and then that um, made way for the present day Cathedral of Christ the Savior. Right. That so doesn't we, bode well we, for that cathedral. We should, we should like set our watches. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely something up with that site, right? The, That's the, right. Sort of there's goes something. Through many iterations. And, and, and maybe it's more than just four metro stations coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of high buildings in Moscow. Um, are, is, that a, a, is that a natural thing for Moscow? Is it a, a germane to Russian architecture? Yeah, this kind of question of, um, 
yeah, all, our, our, our tall buildings, you know, part of Russian architecture. Um, I think if you, you know, if you were to ask a Soviet architect or an architectural historian who was working in the Soviet Union in the late Stalin era, whether you know, very tall buildings were part of the Russian architectural canon, uh, they would say yes, you know, mm-hmm. that Moscow's tall buildings um, were seen in the late 1940s and early 50s as kind of the pinnacle achievements of Soviet, but also of Russian national architecture. Um, so Moscow State University, that building in particular was held up as a model to be emulated across the expanding socialist world, but it was also held up as a model of sort of the, you know, the pinnacle of Russian national achievement. Um, Mm. And as we know, you know, very similar Stalinist skyscrapers were given as gifts to other cities, um, you know, some within the Soviet Union, like Riga and Kiev and others outside the Soviet Union, but now in this expanding socialist bloc, Warsaw's Palace of Culture and Science, for example. Um, And interestingly, you know, these very similar buildings, as they made their way westward, they could then adopt new national cladding so that, you know, Warsaw's building incorporated Polish national features in the classical detailing of its facade. Um, And in this way, you know, the tall buildings of the kind found in Moscow could fit into a variety of national contexts and be part of, you know, the pinnacle of Polish uh, architectural achievement or Ukrainian architectural achievement and so on. Whether anybody bought that argument is another question. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in the Moscow case, you know, the initial skyscraper decree that initiated the whole project of the post-war period, it was initiated by the Council of Ministers in January 1947. It specifically stated that these Eight new skyscrapers for Moscow must reference, they must refer to the historical character of Moscow's existing architecture, and also that the designs for the new skyscrapers should be drawn from the silhouette of the future Palace of Soviets. So there were these two kind of points of reference, um, two lineages that they were supposed to be attached to. Right. And was there any significance in the number eight? Well, it was the 800th uh, Ah. anniversary of the city of Moscow that year. Um, but, you know, truth be told, I never found a discussion of why eight, uh, uh-huh. in, in any of the files I was because looking at. I, because I always wondered if the seven skyscrapers were something to do with the seven hills of Rome, because mm-hmm. Moscow is the third Rome, but I also have never found anything, um, that, that suggests that. And of course, then I learned from your book that there were supposed to be eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, nice round number. Um, talk a little bit about the, um, initial, and I think mainly pre-war, communication with and almost cooperation with the Western countries um, and architects and architectural societies, particularly in the United States. This was a a big surprise to me. Um, And I wondered if you could expand on on that that sort of very intriguing cooperation, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in the pre-war era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the um, one of the arguments that I make in the early chapters of my book is that the Palace of Soviets was the product of the Soviet Union's engagement with the West, quote unquote. Um, and this building, you know, the Palace of Soviets, tends to be seen as kind of a ridiculous example of you know totalitarian architectural design. That is that, you know, the Palace of Soviets is seen as something having nothing to do with the West. Um, But in fact, as I show in my book, the architects and engineers of the Palace of Soviets traveled beyond Soviet borders in search of the latest architectural and engineering knowledge. Um, And they spent most of their time abroad in the Depression era United States. 
Um, and just to give you an example of the kind of connections that these Soviet trips forged that I discuss in the book, um, the architects of the Palace of Soviets were in direct contact and correspondence into the mid-1930s with construction managers of the Rockefeller Center building in New York City. Um, that complex was under construction at the same moment that the Palace of Soviets project was beginning in Moscow. Um, and Palace of Soviets engineers and architects really valued being able to go to that construction site in New York City to see how the Americans built large-scale building projects, very similar to the one that they were building back in Moscow. Um, now, the Palace of Soviets architects and engineers who traveled to America in the 30s, they also hired an American engineering firm in 1934 to consult on the Moscow project. Um, and this firm was called Moran and Proctor. And uh, I came across that 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 name over and over again in some of the archival files I was working on early on. And so I Googled them. And it turns out that Moran and Proctor still exists today. They're called Muser Rutledge. Um, and this is, you know, they're still based in midtown Manhattan. They remain today one of the world's, you know, foremost foundations engineering firms, just like they were in the 30s. Uh, and so in, in 2014, I actually emailed them. I contacted the, the firm and they very kindly let me come to their offices in New York City and work with files from mm. the firm's time in Moscow in the 30s. Um, and I still have these wonderful memories of me kind of, you know, photographing their the files uh, in a cubicle <laughs> with all oh, these wow. engineers working around <laughs> me and the engineers looking at me really quizzically like, what is she doing? Uh, uh -huh. They've never seen kind of a historian at work before. But, um, it, but, you know, it's really clear from those files that I collected um, in New York City, that the Palace of Soviets project was seen as a pretty exciting building from a technical perspective. So there was something to be gained for this American firm beyond the money that they could mm -hmm. make from the project during the Great Depression, right. which is no small thing. Um, you know, and so in 1935, one of the principal engineers from the firm traveled to Moscow himself to consult on the foundation of the Palace of Soviets. And, and so we tend to kind of look at the Palace of Soviets today and this, you know, and assess it pretty dismissively, um, you know, there's a way that that building and the failure to build it is kind of associated with the failure of the Soviet project more broadly. Um, but really, even though the palace was never built to completion, the expertise and the knowledge gained by Soviet architects in the process of trying to build it kind of made its way into Moscow's post-war redevelopment. And so that's the kind of narrative that I trace in the book. Right. But, but before we get into the war and the post-war era, I want to just pause for a moment um, at the, the period of the Great Terror, because a lot of these architects who were initially quite prominent and very much at the center of this effort uh, have unfortunate uh, consequences because of the terror. What sort of threat do you think that they pose to Stalin's regime? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was surprised to find that, you know, the Palace of Soviets project was so directly affected by the purges of the late 1930s. But, you know, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't be quite so surprised given how widespread the violence of that moment was. Um, so the head of the Palace of Soviets administration was purged and replaced. Um, and his replacement, um, a man named Prokofiev, also faced the threat of the terror. Um, you know, the late 1930s was this moment that saw employees informing on their bosses, neighbors informing on neighbors for a variety of reasons. Um, and although the new boss at the Palace of Soviets administration, Prokofiev himself, survived the terror, um, you know, the chaos and violence of this moment really delayed the project 
and ultimately affected this institution. And, and so, you know, an investigation was opened against him. I'm not sure if he was aware of that. Um, but, you know, as this investigation got underway in the late 30s, it also implicated Boris Yofan, uh, the chief architect of the Palace of Soviets. Um, and, and so there's, you know, both of them managed to kind of come through that. Um, I'm not sure if Yofan even knew that he was being investigated in this moment and implicated in this investigation of his boss, Prokofiev. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely a, a destabilizing moment for a lot of Soviet institutions. And it certainly was for, for the, the folks building the Palace of Soviets. And yet the, the architectural projects, in particularly in Moscow, are of great interest to Stalin. And he looms incredibly large throughout your book. Um, and his particular almost hands-on involvement is a major theme. Could you talk a little bit about his involvement and, and help us understand whether he was a help to the efforts of the architects or a hindrance or maybe a little bit of, of both? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, Stalin um, is clearly an important figure in all of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are are sometimes referred to the buildings that were built in Moscow are, as you know Stalinsky Vysotsky, um, and and so you know Stalin's tall buildings. Uh, it, his role is is much clearer when it comes to the Palace of Soviets project, though. Um, you know, we know from Stalin's correspondence with Kaganovich and others um, that the Soviet leader had very particular preferences when it came to architecture. So you know, he weighed in in 1932 on the various design submissions for the Palace of Soviets uh, competition. Um, And we know from that that he was quite keen on height. He wanted the Palace of Soviets to extend upward as much as possible. Um, For the post-war skyscrapers, for this project that began in 1947, Stalin's role gets a bit murkier. Uh, Hmm. So Stalin had aged by this point. He was spending increasingly long periods of time outside of Moscow. And the person who was really in charge of the skyscraper project was Laurenti Beria. Hmm. Uh, Beria, Always a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Beria, of course, is, is, you know, known best for his role in the secret police during the Great Terror. Eventually, he, he became head of the NKVD. Um, By 1947, when I encountered Beria in my research on Moscow's post-war skyscrapers, he was still involved in overseeing the Soviet security system, but he was also overseeing a number of other endeavors, including the Soviet atomic bomb project. Um, And he was handed the Moscow skyscraper portfolio as well. So it was Beria who was most actively involved in overseeing skyscraper building in Moscow. And he then reports up to Stalin um, on sort of progress on these projects. Um, that said, the, the idea, the notion that Moscow skyscrapers were Stalin's creation was a really important idea to those who were involved in managing um, the construction of these buildings and those who were building the structures too. Uh, so Soviet officials in charge of building Moscow skyscrapers, they used their you know, apparent knowledge of Stalin's architectural vision as sort of um, signals of their proximity to power. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in planning meetings that began in 1947, we can see the Moscow mayor, Georgi Popov, quoting Stalin as he was interacting with other powerful individuals at these meetings to kind of pull rank. Um, and it's in these interactions that we can get a sense of Stalin's aesthetic vision for the capital. So Popov would say things like, you know, as Stalin says, people go to America and they return in amazement saying, oh, what enormous buildings. Let them come to Moscow and see what buildings we have here. Let them marvel at the sight of them. And, and so we get these kind of little 
inklings of what Stalin wanted or may have said um, through secondhand accounts. And a key theme of a lot of these anecdotes about what Stalin wants is the idea that the skyscrapers were supposed to, you know, elevate the Soviet Union's international image. The late 1940s, of course, was a very different period than the 1930s. The Soviet Union was now a global superpower. This was a country that needed a capital city that reflected that newfound status. And this seems to be something that Stalin was very aware of. And how does the the war change the needs of Moscow? And how does it um, change the plans to rebuild Moscow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the simplest terms, I guess, um, you know, Moscow shifts from planning for a single central tower, that Palace of Soviets, to planning nine skyscrapers spread across the city. Um, so, you know, there were to be eight new skyscrapers plus the Palace of Soviets standing as the tallest in the center of those eight other buildings. So, you know, in the skyscraper plan that was rolled out starting in January 1947, the vision for the capital of the 1930s was sort of fractured outward. But there are other things that, of course, had changed by that point as well, right? The post-war period ushered in the Zhdanovshina, an ideological campaign named after its chief proponent, Andrei Zhdanov. Um, and this campaign saw artists of all types, and architects included, having to uh, eschew, having to talk against foreign bourgeois influence. Um, and it also went hand in hand with the elevation of Russian national culture. Uh, And this, in combination with the emerging Cold War, made building what are essentially skyscrapers, what really are skyscrapers in the Soviet capital, sort of an awkward exercise. Mm. The skyscraper is a building type that's so closely associated with capitalism um, and how to kind of explain that and justify uh, building these structures in the post-war years at the beginning of the Cold War um, was kind of an awkward thing. And, And so Soviet officials went to pretty great rhetorical lengths to emphasize that their new buildings in Moscow were socialist structures. Um, They were not referred to, uh, the buildings were not referred to publicly as skyscrapers, the word nebaskryob, Russian for skyscraper, was not used uh, in official discourse. It it snuck in uh, in a couple of closed door conversations early on. Um, But the buildings are, of course, referred to as tall buildings or high rises, you know, Vysotnia or Mlogietajnia's um, Dania. And, and so all of those kind of transnational, international connections between the Soviet Union and America that we can see in the 30s were by the post-war years gone. Um, and there were still some hopes among some skyscraper construction managers that they'd be able to rely on American expertise as they got to work on these projects. But ultimately, none of those foreign trips um, took place uh, like they had in the 1930s. Right. So I think, and I think it's time now to introduce our listeners to to the seven sisters, the seven skyscrapers. Um, as I said earlier, I had had this sort of general feeling that they were all identical, except Moscow State University, which is much larger. But um, they are all d- distinct. And from your book, I learned that each was a completely separate building project. Would you introduce us to the seven um, skyscrapers and tell us a little bit about their construction and what makes them special? Yes, yes, they do all look uh, very similar. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, they're all tiered structures. They have that kind of wedding cake uh, like style. They have spires on top. There's consistent, you know, 
symbolism and detailing. There's a star here, a hammer and sickle there. Um, they're not actually that easy to tell apart, um, but some of them are definitely more distinctive than others. Um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs building stands out for me, for example, as being kind of boxier, more square than the others. Um, and that building, which is located on Smolensk Square, was actually the first skyscraper to be completed. It opened in 1952. Um, Moscow State University is also pretty distinct and recognizable. Um, it's located furthest away from the city center, kind of perched up on the Sparrow Hills, what were called the Lenin Hills when this building was constructed. Um, and it overlooks the Moskva River. Uh, and that building, the university building, was initially in 1947 actually slated to be a hotel and residential building. But by the following year, this plan had been altered, um, and this became the university skyscraper that we all know well. And then from the elevated site of Moscow State University, you can actually gaze out across the city and see the spires of some of the other Stalinist skyscrapers, like the Hotel Ukraine, um, which is sort of along the river from MGU and stands near Moscow's Kiev train station. Um, and that was the last of the skyscrapers to be completed in the late 1950s. There's then another hotel standing tall across town, the Hotel Leningrad, um, next to a different railway hub. And this placement of the hotels next to railway stations was actually well thought out, right? Visitors to Moscow were envisioned to, you know, arrive by train. They would be greeted by these impressive monumental hotels. Um, you know, visitors would gaze up. Um, at these buildings, and as Stalin apparently hoped, uh, these visitors would sigh in amazement at the sight of these, you know, world-class structures. So we have the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the university, we have two hotels, and then of course there are the residential skyscrapers. There's the Red Gates building, the Katyalnicheskaya Embankment building, and the skyscraper on Uprising Square, or Ploshed Vostanya. Um, and, and these are located in different parts of the city, but in each of them, Lucky Soviet elites were granted very nice apartments. And this process of allocating apartments at these prestigious addresses started in late 1952 in the case of the Red Gates and the Katelnicheskaya Embankment buildings, and later at the building on Uprising Square, which was completed after the death of Stalin. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, uh, there's the eighth Wysotka, right? The building that's never built, like the Palace of Soviets. Um, and this is the 26-story administrative building that was planned for the Zaryadya. Um, the Zaryadya was and is a you know, very old district in Moscow, located close to Red Square and the Kremlin. Uh, and as I show in my book, although this eighth building was never built to completion, uh, the neighborhood on which it was built was nonetheless demolished and cleared. And nearly 10,000 people were displaced and rehoused to make way for that building. And in large part, those residents from the Zaryadya were rehoused on the outskirts of Moscow. So that the construction of these eight skyscrapers caused a kind of social reorganization in this city with numerous elites rising up into the residential skyscrapers and others being displaced outward. And that upward and outward movement is something that I try to convey in the later chapters of my book. And I think you do a great job. Um, and much of the the way that all comes alive is through these letters um, that the um, disgruntled uh, residents who are being moved out, not up, um, send to 
mostly Beria and, and other elite um, members of the government. How did you stumble upon this this um, source, and and what did you make of it when you found it? Mm-hmm. Did you go looking for it, or did you did you just discover it by chance? Or because it's really it really takes us right into the the kind of tensions of that post war era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I came about them by chance. Um, uh, but um, they were sort of spread. These letters are sort of spread in, in different archival files. Um, and so kind of bringing them, piecing them all together was uh, a fun kind of exercise. Um, you know, in Soviet history, we're, we're really lucky to have this kind of source base, these letters. Um, and I make wide use of them. So I, I draw on um, in different chapters of the book, you know, letters from workers to construction bosses or housing officials. There are letters from residents of Moscow who were displaced by a skyscraper building. Um, and then there are letters written mainly by Soviet elites who hoped to be able to live in one of these beautiful new skyscraper apartments. Um, and in all cases, we're kind of dealing with documents that have been written for official readers, right? They follow certain conventions. Um, there's formal modes of address. Uh, many of these letters, no matter who they're written by, uh, were addressed to either Beria or to Stalin. Um, and starting in 1952, uh, letters from hopeful future skyscraper residents began to pour in. Um, and these letters were really fascinating because um, they include kind of justification for why someone deserves such an apartment, but they also include descriptions of existing living conditions in Moscow. And we can get a really great sense of the scale of the housing crisis uh, that was faced in Moscow of the post-war years, which was affecting even the most well-connected Muscovites. and what would be what would be a reason someone would think that they had the right to go to one of the elite buildings? Mm-hmm. What would be a justification? Right. Well, you know, entitlement um, to an apartment like this uh, was justified by letter writers because of the service that they had rendered, the work that they had given um, to the Soviet state. Um, so, for the most part, people who are writing in to request uh, apartments were. Um, you know, people of, of certain professions, doctors, uh, scientists, ballet dancers, and so on. Um, but requests were also often framed in relation to health. Um, so, you know, the idea that, you know, you could escape a, a damp communal apartment for a single family apartment in one of the new skyscrapers um, was tied to uh, ideas that this would uh, quite reasonably improve one's health um, and that they would ensure one's happiness and allow a person to work even better, you know, for the state. Um, and to some degree, this actually mirrored the message that was being sent by Soviet architects out to the public. Um, since the 30s, Soviet architects had talked about the role of architecture in, so- in socialist cities and enabling feelings of happiness and well-being among residents. Um, and the architects of Moscow skyscrapers had also been publishing statements in the late 40s and early 50s about how these new tall buildings, which were emerging on the horizon, were not at all like American skyscrapers, right? The Soviet (laughs) tall building was not jammed together, as we see in Manhattan. You know, it's not blocking out light and air. These are places that will allow for a kind of healthful life. Right. And so these, these kinds of letters where people are, are asking for something, but also articulating um, entitlement, uh, give us a glimpse into kind of the relationship between the Soviet state and society in the post-war years. And um, 
in addition to really lovely high ceilings and thick walls and good plumbing and, and elevators, what else makes these buildings attractive and desirable? Well, the single family apartments, I think, are the big thing, right? Most uh, Muscovites in the post-war years are living communally. Um, and so that is the big selling point. Um, but then, of course, as you say, there are, you know, these modern features like elevators, running water, um, you know, many of these buildings also include things like uh, nice food stores, uh, movie theaters, um, you know, banks, there's sort of uh, amenities that come along with these structures as well. So there's, there are many things that are drawing them. And then, of course, there's the status that's tied to living in a structure like, like, like these ones. And I think many of our listeners will know the wonderful film, Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears, mm-hmm. um, where the two girls go and pretend to live in the Uprising Square building. They pretend that the apartment is theirs, but it belongs to one of their relations. And they invite all these men over for dinner um, and pretend to be the daughters of, of a professor rather than factory workers. And of course, it doesn't go so well. Right. <laughs> but but that, that film contains some wonderful shots, both of the lobby, the lift, the, the building and the, and the apartment inside is really lovely mm-hmm. um, with this heavy furniture and monumental kind of um, furnishings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, we can, if, if you want to know what it, what one of these yeah. looks like, that's a great place to go. Definitely. And we can really see in that film, you know, the, the way that kind of the values that were always intended to be associated with these structures and with these apartments continue into the post-Stalin era as well. Right. And and so that brings us to the death of Stalin. Um, And as so often happens in Russian history, the one ruler dies and his preferred architect or her indeed preferred architectural style is suddenly and very violently out of fashion and something else comes in. Um, I often think about this in the context of Elizabeth I dying and Catherine the Great immediately sending Bartolomeo Rastrelli home, um, saying, You're, we just don't need you anymore, and, and making everything classical rather than Baroque. What happens when Stalin dies and Nikita Khrushchev takes over? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to some degree, um, the, the shift that we see, which is a pretty dramatic shift um, in architecture and urban planning under Khrushchev, um, you know, the, the groundwork for that shift has sort of been achieved um, in the post-war period in the, in the late Stalin era. But nonetheless, um, you know, there is a, a, a possibility to actually begin to attend to problems like the housing crisis um, that, are, that are clearly problems that are understood to be problems in the late Stalin era, but there's no kind of political will to want to attend to these problems until Khrushchev. So, you know, Khrushchev ushered in really profound changes in Soviet architecture and urban planning. So, you know, very soon into the post-Stalin period, um, at an event that's known as the Builders Conference that was held in December 1954, Khrushchev railed against Moscow's new skyscrapers. He described them as wasteful and excessive. Um, And he criticized the architects of these buildings directly and very publicly in a kind of embarrassing way. Khrushchev had this way of mocking other people um, quite pointedly. Um, And we can see that on full display at the Builders Conference already in December 1954. Um, And so Soviet architecture under Khrushchev shifted away from monumental neoclassical design that characterized the Stalin era. And not long after the Builders Conference, Khrushchev's mass housing campaign came into effect, bringing, you know, prefab uh, apartment blocks to cities across the Soviet Union. 
Um, Khrushchev also canceled the Palace of Soviets project, uh, or rather he called for a new competition to be held for that building of the 1930s. Um, And this new palace was still supposed to be a monument to Lenin, but it would now be located out by Moscow State University, not in the center of Moscow. Uh, And as Khrushchev put it in a central committee meeting in November 1955, uh, he said, you know, the new building does not need to be 460 stories tall. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, that love of kind of height and monumentality that we see um, characterizing the Stalin period was pretty solidly abandoned by the mid-1950s. Interesting. And and a couple of years ago, they announced that they were going to finally tear these five-story dwellings of, of Khrushchev down, and everybody went into a big uproar saying, you know, how cozy and lovely they were. Um, but I don't think they were ever meant to be there for more than 20 years. They were like a, a stopgap. Right. Yeah. The rena- sort of renovation um, uh, uh, plans in Moscow. I think many of the new buildings that are, that people are being moved into have been completed by now. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see, you know, some some studies, and hopefully somebody will do some interviews with people who've been moved from from those into their new structures and see what they what they think. But I think that that um, tendency that you identified as um, some people moving up and many people moving out is still a problem. I mean, Moscow just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, I can't finish without asking you um, a final question that's a little cheeky, but um, very much topical. As we record this in late January, um, the Russian mania for building immense and monumental edifices and residence is definitely in the news because almost 100 million people have watched the embattled opposition leader Alexei Navalny's explosive YouTube video, which documents an absurdly large and very garish palace on the Black Sea coast, um, which Navalny claims Vladimir Putin has built to the built and then rebuilt to the tune of over one billion dollars of Russian citizens' money. Um, we also have the more modest example of this very large uh, cathedral of the armed services that is. Um, inexplicably khaki colored. And I wondered if you think um, this drive to construct these monumental edifices that it still seems to be very much in the Russian psyche, often at the cost of less less sort of sexy buildings like hospitals and schools. Do you think that's alive and well in Russia? And is it a a legacy of, of the era of urban renewal of Stalin or is it older than that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... Um... The Black Sea Palace is quite something. <laughs> it, has, it has a casino <laughs> there as well. Um, yeah, to some to some degree, you know, rulers, people with power, going back a very long time, have have understood, you know, the legitimating effects of erecting monuments and building monumentally. Um, so there's a universal quality to this that's not uniquely Russian. Um, the palace, though, of course, is a bit different since, it, since it's a secret palace. Uh, so, you know, I think Putin just today, um, which will date this podcast a bit, but today just uh, denied um, that it's his, uh, of course. Um, and so it's kind of a secret spectacle of wealth um, <laughs> that's been created along the Black Sea coast. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think large scale building projects like these raise all kinds of important questions, no matter where they're built. Um, and one of the kind of lessons that I take from, from writing this book um, is that, you know, we should pay attention as much to the structures themselves and to the kind of symbolism that they are trying to communicate uh, as we should pay attention to other issues like labor and displacement and the economic financing um, of these kinds of structures. And so that's kind of the the takeaway for me uh, is that we shouldn't be 
totally distracted by the monumental structure itself. We should kind of peel, peel, peel away the layers a little bit and, and look for other kinds of questions, um, as I think Navalny is doing in that, what is it, hour yes. and a half long video? <laughs> well, and that's not the only monumental um, residence that he has, has shared with us, although it is mm-hmm. the largest. Um, mm-hmm. It includes, as you say, a casino and the Aqua Discoteca, right, of course. Uh, which is impressive. <laughs> Okay, well, that's about all the time that we have. But before I let you go, could you tell us a little bit about what's coming up next for you or what's any projects in the works? Yeah, um, I'm currently working on a small book called Making Cities Socialist. Mm. Um, and so this is part of the Global Urban History Projects Elements series with Cambridge University Press. And so that should be coming out in the next few years. Um, and I've also started work on another project that has to do with Soviet visual artists and economists who mm. worked together starting in the 30s to visualize Soviet statistics. And they were attempting to create a kind of picture Esperanto um, for the Soviet Union. So those two projects are in the works for me. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Will you come back and talk to us about it when they're published? I would love to. Yes. Okay. How can our listeners find uh, Moscow Monumental, which I'm sure is available where all good books are sold, and uh, more importantly, uh, your work online and in the social media platforms? Sure. So um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Zubovich. So K-Z-U-B-O-V-I-C-H. Um, and you can find my book, Moscow Monumental, at various online retailers, of course, also on the Princeton University Press website. Um, and it may also be possible to order it through your local bookstore. It's, of course, always good to support our wonderful local bookstores. That's so true. Thank you. Or, and indeed, if, if you prefer it, your local library, which we also have to support. Absolutely. For sure. <laughs> well, that really is all we have time for today. But my thanks to Professor Catherine Zubovich for being here on the podcast today. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and I will be back soon to discuss another new book with its author. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.